0: welcome everybody. Um, It's a pleasure to have everybody uh, back for our latest episode of the Tiger Country podcast. We are switching things up a little bit this week for our emergency general surgery listeners. We thought we'd uh, veer violently away from our usual trauma and cover a topic that is absolutely necessary and um, something that plagues every trauma and acute care surgery uh, attending and resident around the country. And that is the topic of uh, when and when not to take out an appendix and who better to have that discussion with uh, than Dr. Dante Ye, who has uh, really cornered the market in uh, how to tackle the appendix, uh, both as an outstanding surgeon and as a researcher. So it's a pleasure to welcome uh, Dr. Ye to the uh, podcast. How are you doing, sir?
1: I'm doing very well. Uh, thank you for that generous introduction. I don't know that I've cornered it, but I've I've milked it as much as I possibly can.
2: You've you've beaten hey, the, the appendis, appendicitis data quite heavily. So maybe you're appendicitis
0: pugilist. <laughs>
1: I'll take that. I'll take that title. Yes,
2: that's good.
0: Um, my my first question. Uh, has to be who came up with the Mustang acronym, because because that's just that's fantastic. I you know whenever I'm looking at one of these large, multi-institutional, uh, large um, uh, East Double A S T studies, it always has a fantastic acronym. Who who came up with that one?
1: Oh man, well I, I wish I could uh, take credit for it, but but I have to give credit to my wife, uh, Brooke. We at the time that I was uh, designing and, and uh, dreaming up this study, we were moving from Boston to Miami, and we spent, you know, three days driving down I ninety five. And I think the two of us, you know, between the two of us, we racked our brains for a collective—I don't know how many hours—trying to come up with with a really cool acronym. And then ultimately, it just wasn't working out. And we just happened to be driving past a Mustang at that time, and I said, "I love that car, Brooke. We got to figure out how to basically cram." Appendicitis into Mustang. So after about fifteen minutes of anagrams and playing around, she came up with it, and uh, and that's that's it.
0: Oh, that's best. Best things are always fortuitous. So, but before we dive into all the literature that you've done, I was hoping if just give me a couple minutes of how you actually managed to get this from. Conception to this giant 28-center beast um, for our budding academic surgeons out there um, who are who are trying to come up with multi-center studies.
1: Well, I um, I still can't believe I I, I pulled it off. I, I, honestly, I, I didn't. There are times that I didn't think it would happen. Um, so, so first of all, um, I had participated as a Local site investigator for other East multi-center studies. So I had done at least two or three of them, and I got my feet wet that way. And once I sort of learned the ropes and said, "Hey, I, I think I can do this." Um, so then I applied um, when they issued the call for you know proposals, and I was very fortunate to have been selected. That you know East is going to promote and and sort of support this. And then that's really I got to go to the you know the um, the plenary session and and. You know, propose my my study, and then you know, in the weeks and months after that, the emails started to pour in. I also you know used social media and asked my friends to sort of help me drum up support. So the I think it was good that that because it was purely a prospective observational study, the vast majority of centers did not need to get informed consent, like that this was you know all de-identified data. And a lot of the data that we were collecting was stuff that can be extracted from the chart. It, it didn't need to be created or collected specifically for the study. So it was fairly user-friendly. Um, of the 20, I think I probably intera- interfaced with maybe 50 centers, but for whatever reasons, um, they, they, a lot of them dropped out for various logistical reasons. The twenty-eight, it was difficult. It was very difficult to negotiate the data use agreements um, mm-hmm. between all of them, and and it's a uh, it, it's a beast. But ultimately, we got it done. We built the RedCap database, um, and it's, it's it was a lot of work on my part. I would say that I've invested probably over two hundred hours of my own time in terms of data cleaning, um, you know, uh, verification, uh, all, all of the stuff that goes in it. So it took a, a large chunk of my life. And then there were so many people that that contributed to it for free, by the way, like this was a non-funded study. So everyone was doing it um, out of their own spare time, nights and weekends and whatnot. And that's why after the primary publication, I really felt an obligation to everybody in the group that we should uh, uh, cut this up in as many ways as we can and answer as many questions and not let all of that hard work go to waste. So that's why I've been really motivated to try and and you know ask all, all these other questions and get more publications to really help out all of those who contributed their time and energy.
2: Yeah, that that's good stuff. I I I hear you, Doctor. I as part of the uh, being on some of these multi-center trial, you know, doing my own and. And doing uh, being the chair for some of the East and WST committees, DUAs are, I ugh, I get to shiver every time I think about the DUA negotiations. Yeah, We um, have we've beat around this bush, we talked about this paper, but let's get to the nuts and bolts of this. Because I, I think one of the reasons that, and we, we're very thankful that you were able to join us. One of the reasons that we were so excited to have you on was that this, this collective uh, that you put together really came out with something that I think is really a must read in acute care surgery these days. Um and um can you just give us the but not everybody on the podcast will have read it as much as we have, perhaps, or referred to it as much. Can you give us the a brief summary of kind of what what did you what did you find? This was a large multi-center study looking at appendicitis. Give us the punchline.
1: Yeah, so so the reason why I even wanted to do it in the first place was because I had read the Scandinavian APAC trial, right? The randomized trial that came out of Scandinavia. Um, and and I, I noticed that there were some peculiarities about their practice that that n- didn't necessarily translate into what I was doing as a surgeon in, the, in North America. So you know, the vast majority of their appendectomies were done open, and you know a lot of them were mandatory hospital stay at least for the antibiotics three days. And some of their the way that they collect the the data that they define the data, like for example incisional pain was considered a complication right <laughs> I was like I don't know about that so so that's why I was like you know that's not what we're doing right now like we should do a true modern north american cross sectional and so what, that's exactly what this was so we had 28 centers contributing data and they ran the gamut you know they was all over the united states um you know west coast central uh, east coast south all over And we had a wide range of practice. Uh, We had urban academic centers, we had rural centers, we had uh, non-academic affiliated centers. So I I feel like this is a true cross-sectional representation of of North of American practice, right? And so we enrolled a total of uh, nearly 3,600 patients, right? So thirty-five ninety-seven. these were all prospective and the data collection was very deep. Right, so so we 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 went really into the weeds uh, and col- collected a lot of granular data because I had um, the foresight to say, okay, well, we're going to want to look at micro the the micro. So if they if they got cultures, let's let's go ahead and ask them. Uh, let's ask about drains. Let's ask which antibiotics they they received and and how long and et cetera et cetera. So there was very very deep data collection, and basically the punchline, as you said, the what we saw was that we're not really practicing similar to what the Scandinavians were in the APAC trial, right? So almost everybody got CT scans uh, to confirm the diagnosis. So 90% got CT scans. And then there's a, a smattering that got, you know, ultrasound and, and, and MRI. So really less than like 2% really went to the OR without any imaging whatsoever. So that's modern practice, okay? Also, the vast majority received appendectomy. We didn't restrict ourselves to just simple append- appendicitis. acute. We did acute, perforated, gangrenous, and basically over 90% of them were treated with an operation. Of those that got treated, 98% started with laparoscopic approach, right? So, so open appendectomy is really a, a rarity these days. Um, the median length of stay was only one day, all right? So, so we're in the era of outpatient appendectomies. I'm sure, you know, many of our listeners and and you guys also are are familiar. You do an uncomplicated appendectomy. Why do they need to stay overnight? Why do they need to stay the next day? Right. Um, Going, we collected data out to 30 days and also beyond to a year out. And we, what we saw that was that about 10% of these patients come back within to, to, for an ED visit for some sort of abdominal related issue um, we didn't include like CHF exacerbations or unrelated stuff. It was really abdominal stuff. So 10% came back to be seen in the ED in the 30 days and about 6% um, overall were readmitted. Um, in our cohort, if if you were treated with non, uh, non-operative management, we had about a 20% failure rate um, at 30 days. Um, and the bulk of that, the vast majority of the failures occurred during that index hospitalization. Right, so so if you made it out of the hospital with your appendix intact, um, you know it, it was fairly unlikely then that, that you would uh, in the next thirty days, you know, and up to a year get, get require reoperation. Uh, let's see what else. Most of the patients had simple acute appendicitis, so about seventy-five percent had the typical garden variety, inflamed but not perforated and not gangrenous. About fifteen percent were perforated, and about seven percent uh, were gangrenous. Um, mortality was extremely rare, right? So, so it almost never happens it's extremely rare. And that's not really an end point that I discuss. Like I don't go in and counsel my patient, Hey, you know, you might die <laughs> if I take you to surgery. Right. So, so it's, it's not something that, that really comes up. Um, what I thought was, and, and the last thing that I want to, um, talk about in terms of the study was, I, I, I think that our study provides some indirect evidence to challenge some long held beliefs about appendicitis as a disease or a disease, a a group of disease, right? Um, We were taught, I was taught that appendicitis goes through sort of an orderly progression of, of increasing severity. Like the natural history of untreated appendicitis is that it will start as simple and then it will get worse. And if you don't do anything about it, it will perforate and then you will die, right? That that was what I was trained. And I know that previous generations of surgeons treated appendicitis as a surgical emergency and would be rushing this patient to the OR or, or that you would, you know, be criticized for sitting on a patient uh, and treating them otherwise. What we sort of indirectly, so prior to me, there have been a couple of authors throughout the years saying, hey, you know, maybe that's not really correct. Maybe there's like different types of appendicitis where, you know, the simple is going to get better no matter what, or it will get better with the antibiotics or are these least perforated ones, no matter how quickly you operate on them, they're going to perforate no matter what. And so when, when we collected data in terms of onset of symptoms to ED um, presentation and also initial intervention, and what we saw was that there was an unchanging, basically constant level of complicated appendicitis. Some perforated as quickly as less than six hours from the initial onset of symptoms. And then there were others that you know were like out to ninety six hours. Uh, but what really spiked was the incidence of simple acute appendicitis where it seemed to have this huge spike in the first twenty four hours and then go down, you know later on. So, I think that there is this sort of this thing like the baseline fallacy rate where, where um, we, when your denominator is changing and then your, but your numerator remains constant, you, you're, you know, you're in, your rates increase. And so that may have been um, part of the, um, the confusion, you know, in other studies. The other thing we found was that those who were afflicted by complicated appendicitis seemed to be of a different demographic cohort. They were older they were more likely to have comorbid medical conditions like diabetes and coronary artery disease, and they're more likely to be tobacco users. And to me, this is analogous to like acute cholecystitis versus gangrenous cholecystitis, right? Like the typical patient that has acute calculus cholecystitis is younger and female, et cetera. But the ones who have those dead, dead gallbladders, right? The, uh, uh, the acute cholecy- uh, gangrenous, those are like older men with diabetes, right? And so I, I, I wonder. Whether, you know, I don't know how we can prove this definitively, but at least our study provided some indirect evidence that that maybe we're dealing with a set of appendiceal disorders here rather than one disease that is sort of branching out into these different manifestations.
2: Yeah, you know, Howard Atwood Kelly had a whole textbook, I mean, a whole book. It was like 800 pages of diseases of the appendix Mm -hmm. that I have on my shelf and I often scoff at because everybody wants to simplify things. Because we've all been read that bedtime story of appendicitis, appendectomy. Mm-hmm. And and I guess the question, I'm, I, there's a lot of things to unwrap in your study that are really cool and interesting. One of them that struck me was that, you know, we've now, this literature has existed about non-operative management, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's been a lot of studies out about it, and I'm not, certainly not as large as yours, but they've, the people who've done it have managed to show it can be done successfully, If the majority of your patients uh, or our patients, I guess, we all participated, right? (laughs) Our patients, they go to appendectomy. They go to LAPAPI these days. Mm -hmm. Give me your thoughts on, is that, how did that challenge your study? And then is that the right thing based upon what you can understand and interpret from the data you were able to gather?
1: So I think there's a lot to unpack here. Um, The in in writing this paper and also preparing lectures and stuff I've done a deep dive into the history of appendicitis in America and I think that that the, the surgical emergenciness and and the aggressive intervention approach that we take is is a uniquely american thing because outside of the united states, outside of the united states I think it is much more acceptable to treat with non operative management first um, but it's true that at the time that I was collecting this data, which is 27 to 2018, you know, uh, the, the APAC trial had just been published in 2015. It was, it was just about two years old. CODA had not yet been performed. Um, I think probably people were aware of the Scandinavian trial, whether or not they, you know, it changed their practice. I, I was one of the skeptics because I said, well, I don't know. I mean, my practice, is American practice is very different from, from you know, Scandinavian. But I I think that um, it's a very nuanced question because the on the one hand, you know, the you can you can offer the patient, hey, we're going to take out the problem. We're going to cure it. Like you don't have to work like stump appendicitis is extremely rare. Right. And it's very unlikely that that this is going to come back. On the other hand, you know, you could go, I, I have horror stories in my mind of people having complications from surgery, like the, like a bunionectomy, you know, like something super, super, uh, so, so I personally can think of, list a million ways that a simple lap api can go wrong, right? So I don't know that there is a right or wrong answer, but I do know that patient preference and, you know, this sort of shared decision-making model, I, I think is becoming more prevalent and more important than we think. Um, I can go into it a little bit more later on if you like, but, but I, I don't know if I quite answered your question, Joe.
2: No, I, I think you got to it. I, I just, you know, when, when so much of the population in the study goes on to lap LAPAPI, it's kind of hard to study. You've got a much smaller population of patients who didn't to say anything mm-hmm. about, and mm-hmm. that's the challenge. That's going to be the challenge within North American study, right? That's yeah. the way we're raised, so.
1: Yeah. I mean, you have to put it into the context of what's important to the patient and what's important to the hospital, and then what's important to the society, right? Because they may have conflicting, you know, um, uh, priorities. And so it's a very nuanced question.
3: Yeah. So uh, given that I'm not a very bright man, uh, nuance is not my strong point. (laughs) So let's approach this from a different way. In your study, one of five patients, as you mentioned, that was selected for initial non-operative management needed appendectomy in 30 days. 15% in the index hospitalization, another 5% came back within a month. Now, we know from other studies that within a year, 25% of those treated non-operatively will have recurrence. And we also know that the quality of life advantage afforded by appendectomy is very clear within that year for those who, who have had the operation. So all diplomacy aside, all nuance aside, in your world, who doesn't get offered a laparoscopic appendectomy?
1: So if I have a patient who is reliable, has very mild symptoms, and CT scan does not show an appendicolid, right, I am more willing that the conversation that we have is more wishy-washy. I said, well, you have a pretty good chance of getting through this. And the numbers I quote them are 80% likelihood you're going to get out of the hospital in the next day or two without needing an operation. Out to five years, that number probably drops down to 66%. But maybe this person's mother, you know, had some awful complication of surgery, or maybe they're, they're deathly afraid of anesthesia or whatever, but that's not somebody that i push hard on that I, hey, I'm really recommending surgery. After the CODA trial came out, I would say people who have an appendicolith, I'm much more definitive in saying, hey, I really think the right course of action for you is to remove your, your appendix. When I look at all of these secondary procedures and complications, so yes, the quality of life is no different if you succeed. So if appendectomy succeeds, you're doing great. If non-operative management succeeds, their quality of life is about the same. But if you try, append- if you try antibiotics and fail, then we know for sure that your, your, your satisfaction is lower and your quality of life is lower. And if you're looking at like a 50% or greater failure rate at, at two years or five years, I feel like just looking from the numbers, I'd be like, you should probably just get your appendix out right now, unless you have some strong reason not to. If your EF is like fifteen percent, if you're on, you know, um, Zoralto and and what's and have a mechanical valve, like, unless you have some reason not to, have, I, I generally in my current practice, I still recommend
3: uh, appendectomy. Uh, a consistent thread in everything that you've said so far is that you insist on seeing your patients as, like complex individuals with their own lives and priorities, very strange. So (laughs) you mentioned that you're finding support the idea that complicated appendicitis is not the final state of untreated simple appendicitis, but that they may be from the outset fated to be different, different disease processes. And then you also mentioned that they affect different populations. So again, we're going back to your world, nuance to the side. If there are patients who want to treat non-operatively in 10, 15, 20 years, are we gonna be selecting non-operative management based on patient characteristics? Are we going to develop a scoring system for seeing who is less likely to have complicated appendicitis and who we can pursue non-operatively? And given the poor concordance of radiologists and surgical diagnosis, which is something I'm gonna come back to, is that selection, should that selection take imaging into consideration?
1: Well, I think imaging should be a consideration. Again, because of this, you need to know whether there's an appendicolith or not. And also, you want to know the appendiceal diameter, um, because that may be predictive in terms of whether or not you're dealing with a benign disease or a malignant disease. So so I do think imaging is still important and should factor in. Um, I think that in the 21st century, we are, have a little bit more sophistication in terms of being able to distinguish the different subtypes of appendicitis than they did in the 19th century, right? When when uh, when when, be, when they first recommended pe- appendectomy before the advent of penicillin and antibiotics, I, I think that we are a little can can have a have a little bit more granularity and understanding. So, if your question in 10 to 15 years, will we be more sophisticated than we are now? I, I certainly hope so. I, I do think that we can um, we we can do better in terms of figuring out who's going to have self-resolving appendicitis. Like if they're here in your ER 36 hours later and their pain is getting better without any particular treatment, and then the scan shows an uh, acute early or acute appendicitis, non-perforated. Are you going to go and say, Hey, we really got to take this out. Yeah, we got, we got to take it right now to surgery and take this appendix out.
3: Like, no, I'm
1: feeling great. No white count, no fever, minimal pain. I just have some vague thing. My wife told me to come in and get it checked out. Right. I'm feeling better. Like, is that somebody that you really feel strongly needs an, ap- uh, an appendectomy? Probably not.
3: And then the last question before I turn it over back to Milosz, has your finding, has your research changed the conversations that you are having with your radiologists when you go through your scans?
1: Not really, no. Um, In most cases, it's pretty straightforward. Like I said, seventy-seven percent of our patients had simple garden variety appendicitis, which I feel like I can, you know, pick out on my own without needing a radiologist. If there's some, if it's like weird, you know, if it's super long, if I'm having a hard time, you know, uh, uh, identifying the appendix, yes, I'll go and I'll, I'll review the scans with the radiologist. But I, I don't think that. All of the research and all of the reading that I've done has really changed my interactions with the radiologist.
0: Oh, I'm jealous that you guys have access to radiologists to to talk to. Nobody, nobody wants to talk to me. That's <laughs> doesn't seem fair. Um you know that this body of work specifically around appendicitis is is there's a lot to unpack. Every every paper, every post hoc analysis that you have done is you know, expanded my education more and more. And one of the things that I found particularly interesting because it confirms my bias is the use of drains. I, I, I tell the residents, I don't I don't put in a drain. We got perforated appendicitis. It has never made sense to me that this thing is magically now going to evacuate whatever else is there that we haven't managed to um, take out. Um, why do you think your data showed uh, a lack of benefit of leaving a prophylactic drain?
1: Well, I think that um, that paper that we did, drain or no drain, I, I'm gonna be the first to admit that one of the major limitations is the selection bias, right, we were not, we did not have the foresight to include, um, why did you leave the drain, right? Like, so, so yes, we, we coded, did they leave a drain? Yes or no, okay? We um, collected data on the intraoperative um AST severity grade, right? For for that, and so we were hoping that that, and then that's what we tried to control for. So in terms of varying degrees of intraoperative contamination, but and and also the the final path, right? It was it gangrenous, was it perforated, was, whatever. But I don't think that we will ever be able to understand the nuance. Like who knows what goes through the mind of the surgeon when they decide to leave a drain. I generally also like you do not leave a drain for the vast majority of my um, ap- appendix, uh, my appendectomies. However, if this is a patient that I may be resuming therapeutic anticoagulation on like very, very soon, or if there's like this huge rind, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, we've irrigated it and stuff, but it looked like a bomb went off in the lower quadrant. And I think this patient is gonna have an ileus. They're gonna be around in the hospital for a few days. I don't necessarily see a downside to leaving a drain and there may be a potential upside. So, so those are the cases where I may be convinced to, to leave a drain, but I have to say that like this, this, that study, that postdoc comes with a lot of caveats and and a kilo of salt, if you will. Um, So I I think that selection bias was, was, was a huge factor in that.
0: Yeah. I, it's, when we talk about these cases in morning conference or when we're discussing things, it's always very difficult to quantify why one leaves a drain as opposed to not. So I, I can see teasing that out in the data would be quite um, difficult. Circling back around to this um, non-operative, operative uh, discussion that Dr. DuBose started, um, did your data show that there were any patient populations that showed a mortality difference when those two specific things were looked at?
1: Uh, mortal- again, mortality was extremely rare, right? So of the 3,600 patients, only we had only eight mortalities, and five in the index um, hospitalization. These were elderly, sick patients who showed up in sepsis. Um, and then three in the 30-day period after which, which I don't know that we can ascribe, we can, we can attribute it to the actual appendectomy procedure, right? Others have shown that older patients actually seem to do worse with non-operative management, right? And, and it may be that they just don't have the reserve to smolder and to, to fail or, or to have this ongoing nidus of, of, of stress, Right. So, so I, it wasn't in our study, but I've read other studies that have shown using like large, you know, uh, NISQIP or, you know, nationwide inpatient, other big data studies have shown that L- older patients seem to not um, benefit from non-operative management.
0: What about pregnant patients? You know, cause the, the traditional dogma has always been, hey, you know, you, you you don't treat pregnant patients non-operatively. There's a higher risk of morbidity and mortality to the fetus, to the mother. Mm-hmm.
1: So, so I think that our snapshot of modern practice was consistent with that. So we we did a, a postdoc analysis. <laughs> that was actually one of our first. That was that was a pretty low-hanging fruit. So, so we looked at only the, the, the um, pregnant patients. So we had 41. We had 41 pregnant women out of our total sample of 3,600. Now, if you only look at women of childbearing age, okay, so if you narrow down the sample, it was about 1 in 20. So about 1 in 20 women of childbearing age was pregnant at the time that they had the append- uh, 1 in 20 of appendicitis patients of childbearing age was pregnant. Most of them were in the, in the um, early second trimester, right? So about 15 weeks gestation. And the vast majority of them were treated with appendectomy, right? So, so 85% of these, these 41 women went on to appendectomy. And although it's a small sample size, we compared it to non-pregnant, and we didn't really see any difference in, in meaningful outcomes. Maybe their hospital length of stay was like one day longer or whatever, but, but we didn't really see any downside. So it's a small sample, but I, I feel strongly that that we should be taking we should be surgically operating on on appendicitis or doing something to it, you know, uh, whether that be you know uh, per, percutaneous drainage if it's an abscess or something. But but we should definitely be more aggressively treating these pregnant patients, in my in my opinion.
2: Dante, let's talk about um, antibiotics. And what we can learn from your study. And let's start with the preoperative, the kind of perioperative, whether you're going to uh, go do an appendectomy or going to treat them non op, starting with the call on the ED that they got somebody down there, they want you to come see, they've gotten a CT scan, the patient has appendicitis, so much variation in the 28 centers that you had. And I, I've moved around a lot in the military, I've seen it too, right? There's a lot of variation, there's no standardization. What do you do? What's your current practice based upon your understanding of the literature for the pre-op kind of
1: arena so my personal um approach is to use a fairly narrow spectrum antibiotic um just to basically pause the clock or stop the clock if you believe in that progression that natural history progression but i i think that that it is standard of care if you're heading to the operating room or not that right now the standard of care is to treat with some antibiotic and my preference Back in Miami, my preference was cefoxitin, a second-generation cephalosporin. Here at Denver Health, um, we, we use ceftriaxone and metronidazole. It's just how we've decided to, to standardize our care. But as you know, having moved around and worked at different um, uh, centers, local tr- culture is king, right? Whatever, you know, the local culture is, then, then that, that's generally what you go with. Uh, unless you have an infinite energy and and motivation to to uh, to take that to be the champion and to change practice, and I, I feel like that's probably uh, a large explanation for the wide practice variation that we see, because EM physicians aren't stupid, surgeons aren't stupid. We all know the coverage. We all know that. But but I feel like uh, our tr- antibiotic choices are oftentimes being dictated more by customary local practice than by evidence based guidelines.
2: Yeah. What about post-op? And, you know, in your study, uh, about a third of the patients received them. No Mm -hmm. benefit demonstrated uh, in your group. So, you know, that's kind of what your data said. How do we, I guess, taking both of those in cluster, how do we challenge that traditional dogma? You know, I agree with you. It needs a champion at each institution. Mm -hmm. But is there a way in which we can either study this or promote a better understanding of kind of the antibiotic utilization for appendicitis, particularly post-op.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I thank you for for lobbing me that nice, easy underhand for me to knock it out of the park because I'm now going to promote my my latest appendicitis study. Which, if you liked Mustang, you're going to love this. The, the acronym. Okay, is here called we go.
2: What? Drum roll, drum roll for the acronym. What do you got?
1: Casa relax. Casa, that's not <laughs> named after a car. Casa relax. No, but it was the best that I could come up with. Sounds like a bad resort <laughs> in
2: southern Mexico,
1: Casa. Oh, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah so so um, on the tales of this, what we discovered in Mustang, I said, there's, there's got to be a way that we can study this, like you said. And so we have designed a randomized trial to to look at the duration of post-operative antibiotics, um, you know, after the appendix is already in the bucket. Right, And so so we're gonna be, you know this was actually um, I applied to surgical infection Society and it was uh, picked up and, and promoted and um, we actually have started uh, enrolling um, and and we've got about 12, 11, 12 centers um, uh, signed up now. You, this will totally you know shock you, but we're hung up at the DOA stage right now. <laughs> um, it is open for enrollment. I am accepting applications if you want to be part of it, but basically, we're doing this kind of novel study um, design where we're going to be looking not only at outcomes, but also we're going to be factoring in antibiotic exposure, right? So so for example, if you and I both have appendicitis, let's say, let's keep it simple. If I, you and I both have simple appendicitis and I get randomized to, let's say, one day of antibiotics and you get randomized to 0 postoperative antibiotics. And at 30 days, we both have the best possible outcome which is cure with no complications, right? So if we take in the, if we just go by the traditional, you know, no hypothesis, the traditional, we would have the equivalent outcome. But in this new type of study design, which factors in the exposure to antibiotics, it says if two patients have equivalent outcomes, the patient who got less exposure to antibiotics wins, right? So, so we're sort of, it, it's called um, desirability of outcome ranking, right? And then response adjusted for duration of antibiotic um, exposure. So it's a DOOR radar. That's what the, um, the acronym is. So we're, we're doing this. And also we're trying to be, we're also uh, incorporating Bayesian statistics to do some uh, Bayesian analysis. So that, that will hopefully decrease us the sample size that we need. So we are looking into this. As you alluded to, what we saw in Mustang was that there was a huge range going from no antibiotics to 14 days of antibiotics. And again, there's going to be a selection bias there, right? So so we really don't know why they, why that person chose 14 days, you know, why that surgeon selected 14 days, but there it is, right? Um, so hopefully in a couple of years, uh, I'll have the answer for you. So
2: how would our six listeners get uh, contact you to um, get involved in the study? My mom doesn't <laughs> count, so <a> five listeners. Yeah. <laughs>
1: So you can email me um, directly at Daniel.Yay at dhh You can go to the uh, Surgical Infection Society website and, and look for, for the study there. You can find me on the Twitters, right? I'm on the Twitters. Not not that much, but I'll respond to, to DMs. Right? To all your listeners, please DM me. Slide into my DMs. I will Slide into his DMs. <laughs>
3: I don't know about you guys, but uh, after my divorce, Casa relax is what I tried to get people to call my apartment. (laughs) Um, Anyway, speaking of divorce, let's talk about resection of cancer. Uh, You mentioned the risk of cancer and the benefit of interval apis in these patients. Can you tell us a little bit about some of the risk factors that you'd found in your data and what kinds of cancers that surgeons are encountering at the interval appendectomies?
1: Sure, sure. Happy to. Well, um, from all of the patients that got an appendectomy, you know, that was about, you know, about like 3,300 or so, um, about 50 of them had a malignancy. So we're talking about 1.5%, which is consistent with what older studies have, have shown. Um, the most common, about two-thirds of those cancers were adenocarcinomas. Uh, about one-third of them were the neuroendocrine tumors, and I think we had one lymphoma, right? So, so mostly adenose and neuroendocrine is, is where I'm going with this. And then when we plugged in, when we did our multivariable you know, regression analysis, there were, there were really two risk factors that, that um, you know, came out as independent predictors. One was age greater than 40, and the other was appendiceal diameter greater than 10 millimeters. So if you had both of those, if you were over 40 and had a dilated appendix, you had a 3% risk of having a malignancy on the final path specimen, versus if you had um, not neither of them, if you're under 40 and had a smaller appendix, then your um, your risk was like less than 1%. So we're talking about a 3x risk ratio here if you have both of those. So that's why I think imaging is still important to to assess, especially in an older patient, and those are the ones that I generally recommend interval. Uh, appendectomy if they're able to get through the acute episode because you don't want to be that guy who you know doesn't operate and then the patient comes back later with you know carcinomatosis or whatever. so in in fact, when they did the long term um, longer term follow-ups for the coDA trial, they were they were they were still finding cancers, you know, in the non-operative managed group that ended up getting appendectomy. They were still you know, even two years out, a couple of patients still uh, having cancer. so that that that's
3: what we found. So last question before I turn it over back to Dr. Bose. In one of your post hoc analyses, uh, you apparently devised what I thought was a brilliant, um, not even a statistical, an analytic method. It was a hierarchical ordinal scale for outcomes that basically put all of the patients in your study in a tournament bracket for outcomes. And you ended up with a seeded list of who did best better than the you know, who triumphed in the greatest number of pairings when it came to outcomes. How do you come up with this? And can you explain it in a way that um, makes sense in a few seconds?
1: Well, well first of all, I, I cannot take credit for this hierarchical ordinal scale concept. I wish I could, but I don't think I've ever done anything original in my life. So <laughs> I cannot take credit. I was inspired by reading a lot of the COVID trials coming out during the pandemic, so, so you know, traditionally, we would say, okay, either you died or you didn't, right? Either you got an infection or you didn't. And we would power our study, you know, based on that, whatever. But when we really take a more thoughtful bedside approach to it, you know, and, and, as, and also from a patient perspective, you know, the, this, this concept is like, well, this is the, this is the possible outcomes that can occur. And you can simplify them down. We, we, we did seven tiers, right? So the best possible outcome you have after an operation or, or any intervention is cure without complications, right? I think that you can't really get any better than that. Um, and the worst possible outcome, I think most people would, would agree, is death, right? But there are subtle gradations between them. Like, let's say you had a cure, you cured, but you had a complication, but it only required an ED visit. Like you showed up, you know they gave you some, you know, antibiotics and, and that was fine. Okay, that that's uh, that's still better than death, but it's not as good as as a cure without complication. Or you, you have a complication that needed to be admitted to the hospital, but that's it. Below that would be okay. Well, you needed a percutaneous intervention, right? That's probably one step worse than being hospitalized. And then oh my god, you had to had an operation. That's worse than a percutaneous. So we sort of um, put them in this hierarchy. And we sort of said, you know, all right, well, we're gonna, we're gonna compare all the patients who had non-operative management with all the ones who had appendectomy, we're gonna do this turn, round robin tourney style. We're gonna say win, lose, or draw, and we're gonna assign them to all of these outcome categories, right? And we're gonna see, you know, did did this happen to be a, a dominant strategy or was this, you know, was one strategy better than the other? So that's sort of, I, I took the inspiration from a lot of the, the COVID trials, the, the big ones, the, the huge pragmatic, you know, platform studies that, that were coming out. Uh, they use this similar type of hierarchical outcome assessment. And I think that, and that's what our our, our upcoming CASA RELAX study is also going to be using. Because I, I think it's more nuanced. I think it is also more in line with how we sort of think about what are the possible outcomes that can, that, can, that can come out after an intervention.
2: Good stuff, Dante. When you t- when I can figure out how to do out my March Madness bracket with the same methodology, you got to let me know. Okay. Um, we like to, we like to close on the Tiger Country. When we kind of from the beginning we started this, we wanted the listeners to get to know you not only as a brilliant researcher but as a person and a human being, which we all are in this shared thing called life. And so we have a couple of random questions for you if you're game. All right, I'm down. Let's do it. Well, I'm going to start uh, with one that's a little close to home in this group because Rishi Kundi is our resident Tiger Country fashionista. Uh, if anyone is an Instagram friended with him, he can pull it off. Um, I don't know what Mueller wears besides scrubs. I think he works too much. So I don't know. But uh, Rishi has on, on many an occasion chatted me for my Wrangler and T-shirt um, type of uh, fashion skill set. But I am fashion curious. So... <laughs> <laughs> you are uh, clearly a bit of a trailblazer. If I ask who are the five best trauma, dressed trauma surgeons at the, at the East meeting, for example, when we go next week, you'll be, you're going to be on that list. The people who know you, that's it's something, you know, you should take pride in. And um, I, I think one of your signature looks is the Ascot. You're wearing one right now. I'm Ascot curious. Give me the beginners. I'm going to buy one Ascot. I'm going to wear it one situation. And it's going to be first uh, versatile, give me,
1: and can I wear it with my Wranglers? So the, the answer to your last question is absolutely yes. In okay. fact, Wranglers with ascots is something that, that, that we should all strive for, right? What would, what would you call that fashion mix?
2: Country refined or, I mean, everybody has a. I would say that's. Redneck roustabout. Yes, 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 that's my, <laughs> fashion, that's my fashion style. I just very nice, me, very nice. Call my trademark lawyer, Rishi.
1: <laughs> so, so you know, the ascot, I uh, I started wearing it after I finished my training. So, first of all, for those out there who are fashion curious, I would probably wait until after you've got that signed contract, and you, you, you <laughs> and then it'll be very hard to let you go at that point. You're in it, right. But I started wearing it on Fridays. So my first job out, out of a uh, fellowship was at Mass General Hospital, right? And, um, you know, back East, they, they have a certain way of doing things. And, and at Mass General, they love their bow ties. And I was like, you know, what? there's no way I'm wearing a bow tie. Uh, no way. But I can't wear it as necktie every day. And, you know, the, the, the ascot is nice because it says I'm formal, but I'm also relaxed. Right. Yeah. You can unbutton one, two, but never three buttons. All right, yeah. and then you can match it with your with your pocket square, but it's got this certain. Yeah, I think there's an Italian expression called like sprezzatura, right? It's like this the the looking like the care. I guess it's like a, a, a intentionally looking like you're relaxed and chill. So that's so why I think the the ascot is is perfect for that.
2: So it's the mullet of neck accoutrements: business in the front, party in the back, kind of thing. Well, I think the party's in the front. The party's right here. Well, I'm saying avoid it's just the for party. Work. It's, it's reverse. So, now i was speaking language, I can
1: understand. So it's a
3: reverse yeah. mullet
1: of
2: a necktie. What is,
3: what's the difference between an ascot and a cravat?
1: I believe they can be used interchangeably, although a cravat is also, can refer to a necktie in, in certain situations, I believe.
2: All right, that's too much fashion for one question for me. But uh, <laughs> you're also, uh, as, a, as a man of refinement, uh, a foodie, as I understand it quite a bit, right? So you've also been to some great foodie towns. You've been to Miami, San Francisco, Boston, now Denver. Two questions really wrapped into one here. Who has better seafood, Miami or San Francisco or Boston for that matter? Mm -hmm. And then what is your favorite regional dish from the place, any of the places that you've been?
1: All right. So regarding the seafood question, I think it depends on what you're looking for. Okay. So if you're, if you're into stone crabs, you got to go to Joe's Stone Crab in Miami. I think Miami wins hands down for Stone Crab. Okay. All right. If you want a lobster roll, okay, then Boston, Baston is where it's at to get your lobster roll. Do you I do will you say, to park your car? yes. Okay. <laughs> exactly. If you can find parking, which is impossible in Boston. Okay. Um, in the summertime, there is a place called the Barking Crab in Boston, which is in the Seaport District. It's basically a tent over, um, stretched over picnic tables. And you can get a bucket of anything. Bucket of crabs, you can get a New England boil, bucket of shrimp. So, so if that's what you're into, yes. So for sushi, I actually, my favorite, I, I, I'm friends with a sushi chef in Cambridge. Uh, he has his own place. And in my opinion, he's got the best uh, omakase that I've ever been. So Cafe Sushi in Cambridge, it's, it's, uh, it's, def- it's between Central and, and Harvard Square, definitely go there. Um, I would say in San Francisco, the oysters are very good, right? So I had better oysters, especially like Hog Island uh, was one of my favorite, favorites. So San Francisco, definitely West Coast oysters are, are my, my favorite. Um, and then Denver, I don't know. There's not much seafood here. <laughs> it has to all get flown in. Oh, so.
2: what, you, what you go to in Denver, a good steak or what?
1: Um, let's see. So we just moved here six months ago. We have a nine month old and a three year old. So we haven't really gone out a whole lot. I have an 18 month old and another one coming in March. I'm with you. It's like it's fast and quick and you can get it done before yeah. the kids go to bed. Yeah. So pretty much the prepared foods at Whole Foods is like whatever they're serving at the hot bar is yeah. what I'm eating that night.
2: Yeah, fair enough. Um We also would like to close in in closing here uh, to recognize that you are um, a fellow potty of sorts, podcast, right? You and Jamie Coleman have the operative word, um, has a great following as well, perhaps better than ours. I don't know. We'll see. Mila, she's going to run the numbers so I can feel good (laughs) about myself, bad about myself. Tell us the best or worst and best things about hosting a podcast and and your vision for how this. Kind of avenue of discussion is has the potential to change or or advance the educational landscape.
1: Yeah, so so I was very very honored and surprised that I was invited um, to, ho- to to co-host that that uh, that podcast. The operative word, um, which is good, because my wife told me I have a face made for radio and, and podcasting. So so uh, that's probably the best part. I think is that my deep, my deep booming baritone based voice just really hides a lot of my other imperfections the weirdest part is hearing your own voice and i'm sure you all have, when you listen to your podcast you're like is that what my voice really sounds like oh man so that's like super weird i i love it i i love um reading papers in fields that i'm not necessarily like keeping up with and learning stuff um, and and interacting with with other like-minded surgeons Right. Um, They're they're all highly accomplished and very uh, and, you know, uh, you know, really good at what they do. Um, And and to to me, I jumped on the podcasting listening bandwagon like like long, long ago. Right. I was like, I'm this is this is protected time when I'm taking the subway to work. This is this is protected academic time. Right. When I was taking the T across Boston to get to work or when I was riding the Muni in in in, uh, in San Francisco, so that 10 or 15 minute commute is, is time that you could be used to learn new stuff. So I, I subscribe to a lot of medical uh, podcasts, which I feel like have made, they may not be directly relevant to surgery, but I think that they've enriched my understanding of disease and patient care in so many ways. So I, I really do think that this is a key component of learning now that we have the technology and there's an interest. I don't think it's going to replace other forms of learning. This is just one, you know, way, additional way. But, but I, I think for me at least, and for some others who are similarly, you know, minded, I think it works great.
2: Good stuff. Well, thanks uh, to you and Jamie for contributing, and uh, and thank you for joining us today. To honor your time is very valuable, and we very much appreciate it.
1: And thank you for inviting me. It's been a
0: pleasure. Yeah, as as always. Um, here at Tiger Country, we're very grateful to uh, Dr. Ye um, on this episode and all our amazing guests for for sharing all the work that they're doing clinically, academically, uh, on the fashion and food scene as well uh, to to our six, maybe seven listeners out there. Um, I'm sure they're uh, all incredibly grateful. Hi, mom. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So on behalf of... uh, Myself, uh, the boss, Dr. DeBose, and um, Dr. Kundi, thank you so much for joining us on this episode of Tiger Country. And we look forward to um, seeing you guys again next time. Thank you so much. Goodbye. Thank you.